episode 61 of the Steptoe Cyber Law Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Thank you for joining us. We're lawyers talking about technology, security, privacy, and government, and I'm joined today by uh, uh, Michael Vanis and uh, uh, some less uh, frequent guests. Uh, Michael's formerly with the FBI and the Justice Department, now uh, a partner in Steptoe's New York office. Michael, uh, uh, welcome, and uh, what's your pick for the story of the week? Oh, my pick is uh, last night's interview of Edward Snowden by John Oliver, which I thought was, you know, besides being hilarious, it was devastating to Snowden uh, because uh, Oliver asked him at one point, have you actually read all of the NSA documents that you've leaked? And and Snowden replies, oh, sure, I've evaluated them. And Oliver says, well, wait a second. There's a difference between evaluated and read them. I mean, there's sensitive stuff in there that could harm a lot of people, such as U.S. agents. And Snowden just got caught right in the middle of a, of a bald-faced lie, which I thought was was really great journalism from an unusual source. Well, and the only uh, uh, source that has asked him a tough question in a year and a quarter of uh, uh, appearances and, uh, and interviews. Uh, nobody's asked him tough questions. It's pretty remarkable. Uh, but, yes, it was... It was well worth uh, watching, uh, uh, and uh, uh, I, I, I'm not all that uh, familiar with John Oliver, but he was really uh, quite amusing, uh, um, especially when he uh, uh, asked which of these interception programs would lead to the uh, – uh, government intercepting pictures of my penis when I'm sending it to uh, somebody else. Uh, uh, and Snowden walked through how uh, those pictures would be picked up under a variety of programs. Uh, um, Meredith Rathbone is also here. She's a partner in Steptoe's International Department here in, in D.C. Uh, um, Meredith, story of the week? So before I mention my story of the week, I will say, Stuart, you need to watch John Oliver a little bit more. He I should is, uh, do that. always quite hilarious. Um, but story of the week, I'm going to go with uh, the April Fool's Day cybersecurity sanctions. Okay, yes, that was uh, you're you're making a connection that uh, not many people had made. Uh, uh, we'll come back to those because the, that's worth uh, talking about. Uh, uh, let me finish the introductions. Uh, ben Cooper, uh, a member of Steptoe's appellate group in our Phoenix and Century City offices. Uh, uh, ben, uh, story of the week. Story of the week is a decision by the United States Court of Appeals, the Ninth Circuit, the most touchy-feely of all circuits, that came down on April 1st but was not a joke this time around, holding that the Americans with Disabilities Act did not apply to eBay. Not exactly a touchy-feely decision, and, and they came down with it like almost immediately after the argument, right? It was a rap display of rapid speed for that court. Uh, the ruling came about two weeks after the oral argument in the case. Uh, and you actually participated in some fashion in that, right? Yes. Uh, Steptoe and Johnson filed an amicus brief, a friend of the court brief, on behalf of the Internet Association in support of eBay uh, in that case. Okay. Well, we're going to come back to you and ask you what it means for the future. Uh, but, uh, again, i got to get through the intros. Maury Shank, uh, former managing partner in Steptoe's London office and advising us now on European technology and cybersecurity issues, as well as doing uh, private equity investment. Uh, um, uh, Maury, uh, story of the week? I would say the European Commission under new competition commissioner Margrethe Vestager asking 
Google's competitors for comments to reopen the antitrust case. Um, yeah, I, 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 that, that makes it. sense. Uh, um, and uh, uh, our guest commentator for the uh, um, uh, this session is uh, Joe Nye, uh, an American political scientist, former dean of the Kennedy School of Government at Harvard University, uh, uh, whose most recent book is Is the American Century Over? Uh, and I'm Stuart Baker, formerly with the NSA and DHS, and a record holder for returning to stepped out of practice law more times than any other lawyer. Uh, so let's let's get started. And, and uh, Meredith, you talked about the president's uh, April Fool's Day sanctions program. It was not a joke. Um, not a joke. No. Uh, and I've said nice things about it, uh, but maybe you could uh, explain exactly what it does and how it's likely to uh, affect. Uh, uh, international business. Yeah, so I'll give you the um, brief overview. As with all sanctions regimes, it can get a little bit complicated, and I'll spare you some of the, the more gory details. But basically, this is the, the first time that um, that uh, the president and the U.S. government have allowed for the imposition of sanctions on uh, people who engage in certain cyber related activities, and it's not all cyber-related activities, obviously, significant malicious cyber-related activities, and, um, and, and only targeting certain things. Uh, so it's, it's broad in many ways, but, but narrow in some. It so needs- actually, uh, uh, in, that, in that connection, there was this flurry of people saying, oh, my God, it's a new attack on Snowden, yes. uh, and I've got to send him some Bitcoin <laughs> in a hurry. Uh, that's utter crap, right? Oh, completely, yeah. So, uh, so, so that uh, was hilarious. You know, people uh, claiming to, to be, um, I, you know, to, to, to be uh, thumbing the, the, their, their... Right, there was the guy who said, I sent 35 cents to, uh, to Snowden, so come and get me copper. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And, and no, this, first of all, nobody's been designated under this executive right, so there's order. actually no sanctions in effect. No sanctions in effect yet. Um, you know, Snowden couldn't be designated under this executive order because the activity has to originate from outside the United States. Right. And it has to be or, for purposes of stealing trade secrets or something of the stealing, sort. Of stealing trade secrets is one, uh, and it also so so certainly um, commercial espionage is targeted here. Uh, and another another thing that's targeted is critical infrastructure. It has to harm the critical infrastructure of the U.S., which is, by the way, pretty broadly defined right. to include all sorts of things: the financial sector. You know, nuclear plants, as you can imagine, communications facilities, things like that. Um, uh, and also, uh, one other possible thing that could be targeted is if it causes a significant disruption, uh, disruption to the availability of a computer or computer network. But all of this stuff has to, in some way, pose a significant, whatever the U.S. government determines to be a significant threat to the national security or foreign policy, economic health, et cetera, of the so, United so what States. So they, what they've done is essentially set up uh, a shell, a framework, that, that, yeah. a framework for uh, conducting investigations and uh, designating people after they've made a whole set of factual findings. Exactly, yeah. Uh, just like uh, the U.S. government's other SDM programs. Right. Um, especially designated nationals. Especially designated, yes, sorry for uh, falling into the wonkiness of uh, but sanctions lawyer. W- what this does mean is if they can figure out who's conducting hacking attacks on U.S. companies, and there have been plenty of them, Sony as an right. example, um, 
and they were pretty confident that they knew it was North Korea, they'll be able to designate whoever is doing that. If they have names, they can designate names. If they have companies, they can designate companies. Uh, governments, if they choose to designate governments. And kind of remarkably, if you're in the business of just getting this, if you're a customer of a government hacker who's stealing secrets so that you can compete more effectively in international markets, they can sanction you. Absolutely, yeah. If you knowingly receive this information, it doesn't have to be a government hacker. It can be you, you could be a private company hiring a private hacker. But if you knowingly receive this information, uh, misappropriated uh, information, and use it, yeah, you can be designated. And anybody also who provides material support to any of these ah, designated okay. entities. And so that's where uh, you know the U.S. sanctions regimes have been so effective is this material support provision that they bury in here. So you you, you say they're very effective. A lot of people say, yeah, yeah, they indicted all those PLA guys and nothing happened. Um, it, why should we think this is going to be more effective than indicting uh, uh, people uh, who are uh, in countries where, where they're not going to be extradited? Well, you know, one of the things that this I, – first, I don't know if it's necessarily going to be more effective, but one of the ways in which it could be is uh, once somebody's listed, their access to money – often gets cut off, right? The banks, even the foreign banks who aren't subject to these sanctions, uh, they're scared of OFAC. We had Juan Zarate on here, and he said that the one time they, they sanctioned North Korea, and all the Chinese banks ignored their government guidance and cut off the North Koreans because they were afraid of getting caught up in an anti-money laundering analysis. Exactly. The foreign banks are terrified of OFAC after all the multi-million billion and some in excess of a billion sanctions um, is sanctioned settlements with foreign banks. And so when somebody gets added to the SDN list, uh, lots and lots of foreign banks, even if they could, will refuse to do business with these folks. All right. Well, so we, we don't know what this is actually going to mean because we haven't seen anybody bring these cases. It's going to be tough for folks who are named. They're going to be very careful, my guess, with the first few uh, and potentially could could uh, reach deep into some governments that have been blowing us off on this issue for a while. Absolutely. All right. Well, thank you very much. My uh, pleasure. Uh, and um, now let's ask uh, uh, Ben to relive his uh, greatest hits. Uh, tell us, Ben, uh, uh, this um, this victory in the Ninth Circuit uh, uh, on uh, uh, disability access to websites. What does it really mean as a practical matter? Well, uh, it's kind of an interesting situation. What it really means, I think, is that ultimately if there's going to be any web accessibility rulings in the context of the Internet, it's going to have to come from Congress or at least from the Supreme Court because the Ninth Circuit's decision holding that the Americans with Disabilities Act does not apply to website-only venues uh, puts it in apparent conflict with the uh, U.S. Court of Appeals for the First Circuit in New England setting up a, a conflict that could lead to Supreme Court resolution of it. But the, the point of eBay and the Amer- Internet Association in support was that any regulation of this area is so sensitive, it's so technology-dependent, that it cannot come from the courts. It has to come from Congress or an administrative agency acting under a legislative imprimatur. Uh, the, the Earl case, which the Ninth Circuit has just decided, demonstrates by its own history why courts can't regulate this area. Uh, Ms. Earl, who is profoundly deaf, 
was challenging uh, eBay's registration procedure for would-be sellers. As you would think, uh, eBay would be a perfect uh, public accommodation if it were one for the profoundly deaf. Right. But at the time when she tried to register in 2008, the the identity verification procedure for eBay required uh, an automated telephone call to the seller who was then given a PIN number and told, you know, to put that PIN number in when you register. Yeah, but right. profoundly deaf could not do that. And, and that now everybody sends texts as well as an alternative. But uh, um, it, 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 at the time, it, uh, I can see how she would think it was a violation. But it's the kind of thing where um, waiting for a litigation to solve those problems is, is going to slow everybody down. Absolutely. A lot has changed in seven years since she first tried to register her website. And so the courts are necessarily acting you know, in a, in an anachronistically and reviewing what's essentially very old technology. One would think that the marketplace would take care of this. eBay obviously wants to facilitate sales by people who are hearing impaired or, or profoundly deaf. So this, um, the, it, won't this case go to the, public. won't this case go to the Supreme Court? I mean, they're surely it's going not, to seek cert, aren't they? Uh, I, I would imagine they would seek cert, uh, to the Supreme Court. Now, it's interesting that the Ninth Circuit thought so little of the arguments that it, in about two and a half pages, affirmed the trial court's dismissal of the case based on its own 15-year-old decision, which had nothing to do with the Internet, and thought that, you know, the Ninth Circuit had previously held that the Americans with Disabilities Act requires a actual physical place, uh, and that was enough to apply it to the Internet. Other courts, particularly trial courts, have disagreed about the Internet and have read the act more broadly. So given that Internet operators have to operate everywhere, uh, a split among the courts of appeals, among district courts geographically, uh, is not really a tolerable situation. It really does require some sort of resolution. So it sounds like you wrote the uh, uh, cert petition, even though you'll probably be opposing it. Um, uh, what's the chance the Supreme Court will take the case? Well, if one looks statistically, it's always very small, but I would bet this has a very high uh, chance of cert being granted, uh, even though this, the Ninth Circuit's decision was unpublished. It was, well, it's technically unpublished, it's citable, but it's not an official precedential opinion of the court. But nevertheless, setting up a dispute over whether uh, the ADA regulates websites is something that really requires a national solution. All right, so that's our uh, prognostication for uh, the Supreme Court docket uh, in 2016. Uh, uh, Maury, I'm going to ask you to prognosticate on uh, uh, a different EU uh, uh, story than you uh, flagged, uh, uh, which is the uh, uh, fate of the safe harbor in the European Court of Justice. Uh, uh, I, it's, it's actually kind of hard to find out exactly what the argument uh, uh, how the argument went. There's no official record that I can see, uh, but I've been reading stories about it, and it actually sounded uh, uh, pretty ugly. Uh, did you have a chance to, to take a look at what the uh, uh, questions uh, suggested about uh, the court's uh, thinking in that area? Well, I agree with you. It's hard to figure it out, but I've looked at the newspaper stories, and I have an idea. So the, the Data Protection Directive says that the European Commission 
can determine that countries are, have adequate data protection and let data go there. And they've done that for a short list of countries, not including the United States. Uh, but what they've done, aside from countries, is they've determined that certain types of com company relationships are adequate. One of them is the safe harbors. The other is contractual clauses. The other is binding corporate rules. This one's about the safe harbor. And the safe harbor is the only one of those sort of relationship-specific determinations they've made where the ultimate jurisdiction is with a foreign authority. And so the questions that have attracted attention in the court case are whether the European Commission, once they've turned over jurisdiction to the FTC, as they do under the safe harbor, can guarantee that data are safe. And the European, it was, much was made of the fact that the European Commission admitted uh, that they can't control that. Now, I think that's a bit of a red herring because when the commission identifies a country, they've turned over jurisdiction to that country. But I think that this is what the decision is about, is did the commission have authority to do this, to set up this kind of relationship? So, yeah, I, 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 you know, broadly speaking, the, I always thought of the safe harbor as a, a situation in which individual companies can agree that they will continue to apply the principles of European law even when they get the data in the United States, so it shouldn't matter where the data goes. Uh, and uh, and the uh, European uh, Commission has accepted that in principle, but it sounded as though the uh, uh, the court and the justices were very skeptical of, of that, uh, saying, well, but who's going to enforce it? Uh, and uh, this is all subject to U.S. law. And you could you could hear the Snowden. Uh, reverberations in a lot of those questions, uh, essentially saying what, but if, uh, U.S. law permits mass surveillance, uh, uh, how can we say they're adequate and how can the safe harbor prevent that? And the answer to that is it doesn't speak to U.S. law, right? Yeah, that's right. And it doesn't speak to even allowing the commission to make this kind of, to allow individual companies to certify. So, so um, it's going to, I think there is a, diff, a very difficult question here for the court to decide, and I'm not surprised at the skepticism. So if that's the case, I mean, shouldn't uh, uh, companies in the U.S. that are in the safe harbor, shouldn't the U.S. government uh, be getting ready for yet another fight over safe harbor in which uh, uh, the safe harbor may not exist for very long? I mean, the court of the, the, the European Court of Justice is politically astute enough to uh, uh, not just say it'll be it'll go away tomorrow but if they rule against this they will set a deadline for a renegotiation and probably set some new and tougher terms on renegotiation won't they absolutely I think people should be worried about it although we've already been dealing with it because some countries have to approve safe harbor transfers and there's been some moratoria in Germany on that and some other countries like Denmark, I believe, have called it into question. So clients are already seeing their European counterparties uh, raise questions about is their ad adequacy, uh, is the safe harbor adequate, and it could get a lot worse. And um, I think we have to start, the U.S. government and individual companies who rely on transfers from Europe have to think about this hard now. Yep.
That, that, that sounds exactly right. Uh, um, all right. Uh, we are running low on time. Let me run through a, a batch of short um, stories that I'd love to have spent more time on. Uh, uh, the uh, Chinese, who already probably outnumber uh, U.S. Uh, um, Cyber Command uh, and uh, NSA hackers by 10 to 1, have upped their cyber uh, war budget by 30%. Uh, uh, the uh, uh, browser companies have caught a Chinese Internet uh, uh, company handing out certificates so that man-in-the-middle attacks are much easier to an Egyptian company, and they have uh, announced that they're going to be suspending uh, uh, the cert- uh, certificates, uh, the recognition of those certificates, uh, um, it really, as of now, subject to a whitelist of, uh, that's sort of grandfathered in. Uh, um, this is a this is a fascinating set of issues there, uh, uh, in which the Chinese, uh, the, what's being done to the Chinese here, I suspect, is not something that would be done to people had, who had enabled, say, corporate man-in-the-middle attacks, uh, uh, and how the uh, browsers are going to make that distinction, and whether they should be making it is going to be the subject of considerable controversy. Uh, uh, Michael, uh, uh, the uh, Secret Service and the DEA both ca- got their hands caught in the Bitcoin jar. Uh, should we should we uh, draw any conclusions from that? Uh, you know, bad things happen uh, all over the place these days when, when it comes to law enforcement, it seems. And this is just a, an instance in which uh, agents apparently took advantage of some new uh, ways of stealing funds uh, as part of investigations. But it's it's not a good time for the Secret Service to uh, have another scandal on its hands. But it is interesting that uh, as Bitcoin is starting to spread so rapidly, um, people are learning uh, new ways to engage in criminality with it. Yeah. Uh, and finally, uh, um, a uh, faithful listener has uh, sent me a story that I loved, uh, but which I can't spend much time on. Um, uh, apparently, it's now possible with the Raspberry Pi and some of these other tiny computers that cost about 25 bucks to construct a uh, device that will uh, uh, search wherever it is for open Wi-Fi and then try to hack the Wi-Fi router, uh, and routers are pretty hackable. Uh, um, what's unique about this is that uh, these devices are so cheap and so light that you could just stick them in a package and mail them to anybody, uh, and they'll sit uh, in the mailroom and then uh, on the person's desk for at least a little while, uh, trying to hack his Wi-Fi. So these are sort of personalized Wi-Fi hacking, uh, or somebody called it, it used to be war driving to when you went around looking to, for open Wi-Fi. Now it's uh, war shipping. So if you, uh, the, the tip here is if you get a Raspberry Pi in the mail, it's not a present. Uh, uh, hit it with a hammer right away. Uh, and uh, uh, let's close this up and move right to our interview with Joe Nye. Welcome, Joe. Glad uh, to be here. Uh, Joe's uh, bio is daunting. Rhodes Scholarship, Harvard faculty almost immediately after getting his doctorate there, dean of the Kennedy School, three different tours in government at state at the National Intelligence Council and at the Secret at the Defense Department, uh, uh, and it uh, looks like medals at every one of them as well. No. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Very impressive, uh, and still writing an enormous amount. I mean, your your uh, output is prodigious, and at the same time, you're a 
hiker and a squash player. And a fly fisherman. Uh, ah, well, that would account <laughs> for the patient side. Um, what, where do you hike? In the Whites? Uh, White Mountains. We have a place in New Hampshire. Yeah, so I'm a, I'm a 4,000 footer club. Oh, member. good for you. I, I, I haven't, I haven't bagged them all myself. Yeah, yeah. I, it's, it's becoming unfashionable to bag them mm. because they want to encourage people not to go up all the mountains. Yeah. I, I, I did some of them on cross country skis though. That was. That's uh, even more impressive. Yeah, well, the getting up was, was hard, <laughs> but getting down was crazy. Yeah. Uh, okay, so I, what I, I wanted It's called skating on stilts, isn't it? <laughs> could be. Uh, <laughs> actually, I think I perfected something called the, uh, uh, the, it's like the telemark, only it's the vegetable turn, where as you come, uh, you, you slab across, and when you want to turn, you grab the nearest tree and just swing around. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so let it, but back to cyber. I, uh, you wrote a really interesting piece about comparing nuclear, the challenges of adjusting to nuclear uh, uh, weapons and the challenge of adjusting to uh, uh, to uh, uh, cyber weapons. And I, I've always been impatient with that uh, comparison because I feel as though it makes us too comfortable that that you know we think oh, well we've managed nukes so we can manage cyber and I'm not at all convinced that that's true but uh, you had some really interesting uh, uh, points there uh, uh, one thing I wasn't really quite convinced of you said at one point you said well this is not cyber is not an existential threat whereas nukes are and it's true you could end civilization with a, a nuclear exchange uh, but you could kill an awful lot of people with a serious SCADA attack. Oh, I, if you live in Chicago, or I should say Boston, where we've had a, an extraordinary winter, and uh, somebody brings down the grid in February, yeah. uh, you can have a lot of dead people. I mean, there's no question about that. I guess what I meant by that comparison is that uh, uh, a, a nuclear winter, which used to be one of the, right. the uh, horror stories that scientists concocted uh, in the 1980s, I don't think you're going to have cyber winter in that same sense. But it, this is not to belittle cyber. Right. In fact, one of the points in that article that I tried to make is that these two technologies, nuclear and cyber, are totally different. And, yes. And many people say, therefore, don't waste time comparing them. I was interested more in what you might call a meta question. When you have a huge disruptive technology, how does a society learn about it? And yes. how long does it take? And when do you begin to get agreements? And... What I concluded is it took about 20 years in nuclear. Yeah. And if you look at cyber, we haven't even reached our 20th anniversary if you date cyber from when the web takes off right. and thereby provides the substrata for economic interdependence. Although, you know, the best book on cyber spying ever written is the Cuckoo's Egg, uh, mm-hmm. I, which was, I think it was 1989. Yeah. The, oh, well, the, you know, having worms and security problems has been there right. for a long time. But I think it's, it, if you look at the graphs of how many people are using the internet, yeah, it, it, it really takes, takes the hockey stick effect is in the late 90s. And once that takes off, it creates an interdependence which an interdependence creates vulnerability, right? And vulnerability creates insecurity. So I think I, I would date the the real uh, threats to security in a big way from the from the late nineties. So one of the things that I have spent time doing is thinking about exactly what you said: new technology, new weapons. How does the society adjust? And and I'd recommend. I know you lived the nuclear stuff, but going back to look at how 
the prospect of bombers that could reach the cities of every major country changed everyone's view of the world. Uh, um, is it, it's it's remarkable how big a deal that was. And I, I I've said to people. Imagine you're a policymaker who has just lived through the slaughter, the meat grinder of trench warfare, and somebody comes up to you and says, it's 10 years later and the next war, 10 years from now, is going to bring that meat grinder to your home and your family. Um, it, it actually makes uh, appeasement start to look pretty sensible. Well, I think that was in the minds of somebody like uh, Neville Chamberlain. Yeah. But what is interesting is that uh, the amount of punishment that the British and the Germans accepted, I mean, even yes. the bo- the bomber will get through. It did. It didn't end the war. No, it, it, mm-hmm. it, it, it had horrible impact on civilian populations, right. but didn't win the war. Right. And I, I, that's perfectly possible as an outcome yeah. for cyber weapons that we can mm-hmm. all end up with, uh, you know, uh, no power in Chicago in the winter, and at the same time uh, have it not affect who actually prevails in the conflict. Oh, I think that's right. Yeah. yeah. I think the other thing I think is that's interesting is, is I look back on uh, nuclear technology was the assumptions that people made, which in an area where technology is very volatile, and how quickly they can turn around and be wrong. In uh, 1946, and Bernard Brody wrote one of the first uh, books on mm-hmm. doctrine or theory, the assumption was that atomic bombs, not hydrogen bombs, atomic bombs were very scarce. So you save them to bomb cities. Oh, yes. And because you couldn't and afford you, you probably need 20 to take yeah. out a big city. And then as you got the hydrogen bomb in the early 50s, all of a sudden destructive power was plentiful. Right. So it was no longer scarce. And then you began to say, let's target uh, forces, not cities. Right. And so the, the change in the technology moving from atomic to thermonuclear weapons uh, leads to a total change in doctrine. But then you have the point that McGeorge Bundy pointed out in the in uh, his final book, is when you looked at the Cuban Missile Crisis, and he was watching mm-hmm. Kennedy right. up pretty closely, he said, all you need is one or two. The prospect of one or two going off in American City was enough for deterring Kennedy. Yeah, I'm not sure it would have deterred the Russians quite as much. Well, it might not deter the North Koreans. <laughs> that, that, well, I, I have said, yes, taking out their Internet is not going to yeah. deter them, that's for sure. And and even you know, destroying their infrastructure, mm-hmm. uh, they might say, you know, if it's a contest to see which society lasts longer eating grass, I think we're ahead. Mm-hmm. I, uh, so it, one of the things you talked about is taking out the forces, because I, I think this second strike issue is something that I don't hear much about in uh, discussions of cyber war strategy, but it's it's every bit as scary uh, and as much an incentive to strike first as it is in a nuclear mm-hmm. uh, uh, strike, maybe more so. Um, and yet, um, when people talk about what's our nuclear our cyber strategy, you don't hear people talking about the incentive to strike first. I don't quite understand. Well, why. one of the things that's intrigued me about uh, cyber war is what Thomas Ridd has said in his book. Mm-hmm. The title of the book may be a bit uh, overly stated: uh, "Nuclear war will not, uh, a cyber war will not take place." But what is interesting is it hasn't been used more. And if you ask why hasn't it been used more, I think it's because of the uncertainties. They're, I think the military, as they as they think about its use, uh, 
they realize that they don't know the full effects. And, or how long they'll last. Or how long they'll last. Or how to control the escalation. So, it, it, to me, the interesting thing is there has been more of it. So that's, I, I, I think I have a different view on that one. I, um, I agree with you. If you were, if you were saying, I, I want to launch an all-out attack on a country mm-hmm. and I want to use all my cyber weapons, what will be the impact? What can we count on? No one will know. I, uh, on the other hand, uh, I don't see a fear of escalation. Uh, or at least I, 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 yes, there's a fear of escalation, but that's not preventing use. That's just cabining the use. But we've seen, you know, I, I think, GitHub is hard, the attack on GitHub is hard to see it in any context other than it's an act of military compulsion exercised against an American institution. Uh, the Sony attack was an exercise of military compulsion on Sony. Um, SANS attack was an exercise of power over uh, uh, Sheldon Adelson. Um, and, and then, of course, the DDoS attacks on American banks. Uh, uh, now, all of them, or many of them, were cabined, right? They were not all-out attacks, mm-hmm. uh, because nobody knows how far they can go before they really piss everybody off here. Uh, but it's also true that every attack, or most of the attacks, have gotten stronger because we have not reacted particularly aggressively in response. Uh, well, I think I think you're right for for what I would say are attacks that are below the the kinetic equivalent of, of, of a devastating right. uh, physical attack. Uh, I mean, if you look at the, the extent to which we have a doctrine, it says wars when finally when the president declares it. Yes. And, uh, and then if you read the context around that, it will be something that will be the equivalent of a kinetic attack, which kills or takes lives, which would be the threshold where he's likely to declare it. So I think the things you mentioned are real, but they're not, they're but not, they're, they're, they're below war. a certain well, threshold. Well, they're not war because we didn't say they were war, right. in part, uh, and uh, they were probably calculated to avoid that mm-hmm. and to see what our appetite for this is. But I was thinking of something different, Stuart, which is that if you look at the uh, attack on Iraq in 2003 or on Libya, um uh, it, they, we took out the air defenses uh, right. it, with conventional means and not with cyber means. I've been told, though I don't know whether this is true, uh, that part of the reason is that we didn't use the cyber in Iraq was we might have taken out the whole French ATM system and we didn't know that we wouldn't. Right. So that lack of understanding of the full range of the effects of the weapons, not knowing the full consequences, I think is, has been uh, something which is made for a degree of restraint. Although, I, you know, again, the rumor is that the Israelis took out the Syrian air defenses. No, the Israelis, on the, on the attack on the Syrian reactor, that's definitely, I, well, not definitely, but I've heard that from many right. sources as well. So, I... Uh, Yes, cabining the attack is tricky, although, you know, I have also heard uh, stories that if you want to attribute attacks in cyberspace, uh, it, for some players it's hard, but for U.S. attacks it's easy because they're the only attacks that are so carefully cabined to avoid collateral mm-hmm. damage. Uh, uh, and so we may not think of that as a unique feature of our uh, technology, but we've made it one. Uh, mm-hmm. um, so that's another 
issue that I wanted to uh, talk about, and you you touched on this in the uh, in the paper, uh, is the enormous importance that law of armed conflict has come to play in our military generally, and the role it's playing mm-hmm. here uh, in the context of cyber. I think it's a a very bad role because it's preventing us from actually thinking about how to win uh, a cyber war. Um, it, but you've you've got this long history in nuclear weapons. I can't imagine how you square the use of nuclear weapons with proportionality and the the, the fashionable doctrines of the law of armed war, warfare. Um, it, was anybody in the 60s and the 70s actually thinking about? How to square our strategy with the law of Arkansas? They thought about it and they expressed it, but uh, not very successfully. You read somebody like Albert Wollstone or Freddie Clay and so forth. They were, they would argue that attacking cities was immoral and therefore you needed to attack uh, uh, forces. And uh, uh, so that there was an effort to do this. I think in the long run. Uh, that may not have made that much difference. If if Bundy is correct that uh, that that an attack on a city was going to be devastating and therefore was deterring, it might be that that's uh, that all this effort of nuclear theology that we went through uh, didn't matter all that much. I, I I suspect that's right. If you're thinking you might be nuked. Uh, uh, and you don't take much comfort from the idea that they're actually aiming at your forces because your forces are likely to be in cities that uh, uh, will get wiped out too. Well, and there's also the, the, the point that when uh, when you don't know what's going to happen, you may want, uh, you're, you're somewhat more cautious. There's a, this famous quote where Alan Entoven, who was in uh, one of McNamara's whiz kids, was arguing, I think, with, uh, I think it might have been LeMay, but some, general in the Pentagon about nuclear effects and doctrine and so forth. And finally this young whiz kid says, General, I've fought as many nuclear wars as you have. Yeah, no, I thought and, that was a great quote. I, I, I and, love and that. And to some extent there's a little bit the same in cyber, which is that if you take real large-scale cyber, which is equivalent to a kinetic attack that kills a lot of people, we don't know much about it. Well, yes, um, but me, I, you know, I would I, I would argue that Mandiant has fought more uh, cyber wars than anybody in the <laughs> Pentagon. Uh, there are there are cyber attacks going on, and we know roughly how they work. Uh, mm-hmm. And yes, it's true they've never gotten to the point uh, where we would feel under attack, uh, deliberately so, perhaps. But it, they've certainly got to the point where they've demonstrated that it could get a whole lot worse for us. And no, I think I think that's right. If you, but then I I would distinguish cyber attacks from cyber war. In other words, I'm I'm right. setting okay. a threshold which is which is somewhat ha- higher. And I think your point is right about cyber attacks. But uh, if you let me spin a scenario for you. Imagine that uh, Japan or China sink its, a ship of the other or down a plane of the other off the Senkaku Daiyu Islands. And uh, the Japanese use Article 5 of the treaty. They say, bring in a ship. We move a carrier closer. The Chinese, seeing the carrier come closer, uh, we see movement which unveils one of their shore-to-ship mm-hmm. uh, ballistic missiles. Right. And we can either take it out with cyber or kinetic, we, a cruise missile or by a cyber attack. 
somebody in the briefing room is going to say, if we do it with a cruise missile, there's going to be kinetic effects and so on, so much collateral damage. I think we can do it by a cyber attack on the phased array radar that they rely on without any deaths. Isn't that better? So suppose we do that, and then we have to ask, will the Chinese see it as... No, better or worse. Yeah, no, but as we, as we understand what we think yes. is escalation, uh, minimization and right. caution, we have no idea whether they'd see it that way or worse. Yeah, I, 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 I you're right. I, and my immediate assumption was if something doesn't blow up, it's going to take people a while, a little longer to decide they've been attacked and that gives more time for uh, cooler heads to prevail. But you're quite right. They could Not say, if this ship, not if this carrier keeps coming forward uh, when you, after right. it, and your radar has gone down. Right. And, and, and at which point, uh, if you are of uh, Chinese, you say, okay, they've unleashed cyber warfare on us and mm-hmm. we can do the same. We yep. need to show them that there are no, that there are costs to yep. doing that. Let's see if we can uh, take out the SCADA system that runs the nuclear uh, power plant and on then, board the carrier. And then the interesting question is, will you have intra-domain retaliation or what's called cross-domain retaliation? Right. Words, why should they keep it inside cyber? Words, right. Suppose they, the choice of moving out of the cyber domain to the kinetic domain is open for either side, and we don't really understand their doctrine or even ours about how we would handle that. Well, clearly our doctrine has to be that if you hurt us badly enough with a cyber attack, we will use kinetic force. Uh, which we've said. I mean, right. we, we've said explicitly you reserve the right to use any means. But So that's, we've introduced cross-domain yeah, retaliation, right. and I think others would say the same. I am struck, and I tell this story, about how the horror at um, destruction of civilian ter- uh, uh, cities from the air led to the pause in uh, uh, attacks on London, for example, mm-hmm. for nine months, uh, and it was finally just a miscalculation about what it would take uh, to appropriately retaliate, and uh, you know, Churchill, there was a navigation error. Uh, the bombs mm-hmm. fell not on the shipyards, but on the, the financial center. Um, so Churchill ordered that night an attack on Berlin. And I, I thought this was really fascinating. It shows that politics goes on in wartime. The problem with that is it was really embarrassing to Hitler. Because mm-hmm. he'd said there wouldn't be those things, and so he had to react very aggressively, and he brought the blitz, uh, and uh, um, and so you never know when one miscalculation about how to gauge mm-hmm. retaliation will yep. lead to just a complete breakdown. Right. And I think that's surely true with weapons that where the advantage is always with the aggressor or yep. the, with the offense, uh, which is true of the bomber, true here. Uh, and uh, it may not win the war, but the asymmetry of the capabilities is going to push us into an escalation that feels controlled and isn't, is mm-hmm. what I fear. Yep. Yeah. Uh, okay. Um, it, so the other thing you talked about, and I thought this was uh, absolutely uh, true, was that uh, uh, the unintended consequence of civilianization of the technology uh, was to uh, uh, of the nuclear technology was to build a set of private profit motivated actors who systematically captured their regulators uh, and developed their own agenda, which was 
profit motivated uh, that w- sometimes worked at cross purposes to U.S. kind of non-proliferation goals and the like. Uh, and that surely is true in uh, the area of cyber where uh, we didn't even create the industry, uh, we're just riding on it. Yeah, I think it's even more so in cyber if you think of the fact that uh, the nuclear uh, technology starts inside the government and then we deliberately push it out and then after it's pushed out we create this interest group which has interests of its own. Cyber is almost the other way around in the sense that uh, what is it, 90% of the internet is, is private. Right. Uh, the government is sort of trying to get a little bit of of a hold on here. We have this enormous vulnerability in the private sector but it affects all of us. Yes. So the one of the responses on the part of the Chinese to this is they've privatized their war and espionage capability, they, mm-hmm. they, uh, or they've allowed people to develop um, multiple income streams from carrying right. out uh, these attacks. Uh, uh, whereas we've tried to keep it, you know, you know, people wearing uniforms or mm-hmm. at least ties. I and I wonder, you know, given that we're out already drastically outnumbered whether it makes sense for us to do this. This is one of the reasons why I tend to be an advocate for letting companies who are under attack do more because they're motivated and as long as you've got some idea that you can control their their behavior, uh, uh, bringing those forces to bear on an attacker um, adds to your defensive capability. Hmm. Well, I think there may there may be some room there after all. If banks or securities firms uh, see a source of malware from the given address or it's repeated, right. uh, they can put it on a sidetrack or in a sandbox or something. So, or they drop it or they delay communication. So it doesn't even if you don't have hack back in the sense of I'll zap your computer, which but you at least have the you, ability to to, yeah. to to sinkhole this stuff. Well, yeah. the, there are rumors that during those attacks, the, the DDoS attacks, you know, my impression is that the U.S. response to that was quite ineffective, uh, uh, the, that uh, we started demarching a lot of people and saying, you know, there are um, machines in your uh, territory that are part of this, can you stop them? And they would send Officer Plot out to, to, to look and to say, you know, is there anything wrong with this machine? Can you help us? And they knocked out a quarter of the attacking machines, which is just, mm-hmm. you know, not um, helpful. Whereas it would have been possible to hack those machines and maybe even take over the, the networks in some mm-hmm. cases, uh, um, which for international law reasons Apparently, we didn't do, um, and the banks were apparently pretty impatient with that. And there, there are rumors that some effort, some private effort was made to stop the uh, uh, attacks more directly, uh, uh, and uh, the rumors go to the more or less along the lines of uh, the way to do this right is just to hire the Israelis and don't ask too many questions. <laughs> so. Simplify things. <laughs> yes, exactly. And that's probably good for their industry and good for their defensive capability. Uh, um, so uh, before we finish up here, I uh, want to ask you about the conference we were both at uh, because it uh, was talking about remedies for cyber espionage. And since then, the administration has uh, uh, put out a, a, a an OFAC sanctions program. Uh, and uh, I wondered uh, what you thought about the, this, it, it, you know, it strikes me as kind of innovative, um, uh, but I, there are undoubtedly some questions from a strategic point of view about how effective it will be. 
Well, it, I, it's interesting. If you, as I understand the new sanctions, which I think makes sense, uh, it's it, the problem of attribution is probably not going to be the key pro- difficulty. No, it looks like we're getting much better. At we're that. getting better at attribution, but even when you have attribution that satisfies us, are you going to have it that satisfies the audience you're trying to reach, whether it be the the opponent or a domestic audience or third parties? And as you try to improve that uh, your uh, your presentation of the attribution, what are you giving away in terms of uh, programs that you don't want to give away? So I, I my theory on this in part has been um, knowing that somebody's in your network seems like a big secret that you don't want to give away. But the fact is, we know that the Chinese are in our networks, uh, mm-hmm. and. It's not a secret, and we still can't keep them out. And so uh, it may actually turn out that we can say, yeah, we broke into the North Korean network, and, and we saw this happening. Uh, and as long as you aren't, aren't clear about how and when, uh, it may be that you can uh, disclose that without really hurting your sources and methods. I did talk to somebody at, the, at OFAC recently uh, and said, how are you going to explain your decisions. And they apparently, they've, they've had this in the past, they use a lot of classified information, a lot of intelligence, and then they write an unclassified statement of facts that is designed to justify their determination, uh, get it, uh, make sure that it passes muster with the intelligence community, and release it as part of their uh, uh, announcement, which mm-hmm. I think is about as good as it's likely to get. And probably I, I would agree with you if your recommendation is those first few ought to be pretty detailed and mm. red teamed before they go out. Right. Yeah. yeah. You saw this in Sony where, where uh, even though the president basically put his credibility behind it, there were still a large number of people in the cyber community who were skeptical or finding reasons yeah. and so forth. I think some of that was posturing, and and some of it was generally not understanding how good the U.S. Mm -hmm. intelligence capabilities were. Uh, And my guess is that 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 noise will subside. The the other part was these are just people who are conditioned by the Iraq war hangover Mm -hmm. to to be very skeptical, uh, and you can't completely blame them. I want to close by asking you about your new book, Is the American Century Over? Uh, I think technically it is, uh, but uh, uh, the real question is, um, you know, I think I, my entire adult life I've been hearing that America's in decline and that, you know, the, the jig is up. Uh, and and yet yeah, we've been very lucky in our adversaries or the competitors we've worried about, but uh, China's the obvious one now. Uh, why do you think that the American century isn't over right? uh, and the Chinese century may not quite arrive? Well, first, I think we we have a tendency to, in psychology, to exaggerate in the 60s or 50s and 60s. We thought the Soviets were 10 feet tall. In the right. 80s, the Japanese were 10 feet tall. After the 2008 uh, recession, the Chinese are 10 feet tall. But when you look more carefully at the Chinese Situation. They have major problems. I mean, they have they have to change their growth model. Right. Their growth is, rate is going to decline. They have to change their growth model in a way which rewards innovation and domestic consumption more. That's easier said than done. Yeah, the they also never quite got that, that, right. that, that mix right. They also have a demographic problem, which is that they're going to have, as the Chinese put it, there's danger of growing 
old before you grow rich. Right. And they have a political transition problem. Unlike uh, India, which was born with a constitution that solved this, uh, the Chinese are facing a point that around $10,000 per capita income, uh, there's a greater demand for political participation. And they're reaching that now. And right. they really don't know how to deal with it. Yeah, I, 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 that all does make sense. And, and uh, uh, she seems to have thought that the way to do this is to uh, double down on authority and uh, cult of personality, uh, um, which strikes me as a little uh, nostalgic. I think that's right. I mean, he's, he's basically, he talks about using market forces, but he's still preserving state-owned enterprises. And he's clamping down on the political openness that had a little bit of opened up under Hu Jintao. And uh, I don't know that that's the formula they need for this. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I, it's not clear what the formula is. Yeah. I, I agree with you. It's but a even, if, even if China gets it becomes larger than the U.S. as an overall economy in, let's say, the 2020s sometime, measured by exchange rates, not purchasing power parity, uh, it, you measure the sophistication of economy by per capita income, and we're five times richer than the Chinese per capita. So that if you look at an Apple iPhone, uh, $750, very little of that goes to value added in China. Or as the Chinese put it, uh, they're good at adding jobs, J-O-B-S, but they don't produce Steve Jobs. Yeah. And I think that problem is still there. They, Maybe. I, 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 you know, the size of an economy can make an enormous difference, even if the people in it are not that rich. Oh, it's it's one aspect of economic power. If you have a big market and you can control access to it, that is a very important aspect of power. But the assumption that just size is the source, the only source right. of economic power, misses the fact that economic sophistication, the quality of your technology, the depth and flexibility of your capital markets. All those things are very important in terms of American power. But, you know, it it is true that they're, they've done best in the places that the central uh, bureaucracy wanted their economy to do best in. Uh, But if you look at uh, companies like Huawei, they produce very sophisticated uh, Mm -hmm. uh, technology, which in head-to-head competition with uh, Western companies has made them the biggest or the second biggest Mm -hmm. uh, supplier in a lot of fields. Uh, So it's not that they're not going to produce really good technology of the sort that Steve Jobs might have produced, but it might not be in consumers, uh, consumer technology. Yeah, the question, I mean, there are lots of great Chinese entrepreneurs, Jack Ma is mm-hmm. another example with Alibaba. The question is whether they can spread this across the economy as a whole. And uh, if, they're, if, you're, if your formula has been imitation and theft of intellectual property, that actually creates a disincentive for developing the institutions which allow you to innovate. I wrote a report with Jim Lewis on exactly yeah. that, that uh, this is a, uh, all this espionage is a tax on uh, research and development. Right. It reduces the return. And so nobody in their right mind is going to invest in that, and, and including the people who are stealing it, right. uh, who will get to 95% as good as their competitors and won't quite know what to do next. Yeah. There's also the problem of, of the base. I mean, if you look at the rankings of, of universities in the world, take the top 20 universities as ranked by Shanghai Jiaotong University, 15 of the top 20 are American, none are Chinese. Until they've, until they've done something about that ratio, 
they're not going to catch us. Yeah, very interesting. Uh, well, I, I conscious that we're running out of time. I uh, really want to thank you for coming in. Uh, uh, do you have any speaking engagements? Other books about to come out? <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm going to I'm going to speak about this uh, new book, Is the American Century, over tonight at CSIS. But uh, after that, I'd like a respite. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, get up to the White Mountains. Uh, yep. uh, the, uh, I, I did a lot of skiing in Vermont and the Greens this uh, uh, this winter. It was well, wonderful. I snow. intend to go cross-country skiing this weekend. Oh, so have you ever been in the Canadian Ski Marathon? No. no. I, uh, I did that uh, in the 70s. It's a great experience. It's it's a hundred miles, two days. Wow! In events, uh, <laughs> um, but uh, what a wonderful Canadian experience! Yeah. You know, they they bring out the army in those big white uh, yeah. snow boots and they shovel snow onto the road so you can <laughs> ski across the road. Uh, Pretty good. Uh, uh, people come out of farmhouses in the middle of the wilderness yep. to serve you with hot drinks. It's uh, highly recommended. Um, I'm, oh, I'm just hoping my grandchildren get big enough while I can still ski <laughs> that I can take them on that. Uh, all right. Uh, well, thank you for coming. Uh, uh, announcements for uh, uh, folks. Uh, um, one, uh, mark your calendar. Uh, we are having a beer summit, a beer podcast summit uh, with Lawfare. Rational Security is a podcast that I enjoy a great deal, and uh, the hosts from both the Cyber Law Podcast and the Rational Security Podcast are going to be appearing at a fundraiser for Lawfare May 7 from 6 to 9.30 here in D.C. at the Washington Firehouse Restaurant. Uh, that's on North Capitol Street, 1626. Uh, uh, so you got time, uh, but uh, if you want to hear what we sound like uh, with a beer in us, or if you've always, if you've been gotten tired of shouting at the uh, uh, your phone and would like to actually ask us questions, we're going to have uh, a live mic for people to ask questions during the podcast. So uh, uh, we hope to see you there. Uh, we'll announce more uh, in the future. Right? Um, we're open, to, open for, oh, let me give you some of my speaking engagements as well. Uh, I think I mentioned these. April 20 in um, uh, Silicon Valley, uh, uh, April 29, I'm going to be on a panel for the Federalist Society here at Steptoe and Johnson. Uh, uh, they're having a national security symposium here, uh, talking cyber, of course. Uh, All Tech on May 18 in Kentucky has asked me to do a speech on cyber threats. And then June 8, uh, I'll be at Stanford again talking uh, uh, cyber threats. Uh, so uh, those of you who uh, would like to uh, shout messages in the more traditional fashion, uh, you can phone us at 202-862-5785, or you can send us email, cyberlawpodcast at steptoe.com. This has been Episode 61 of the Steptoe Cyber Law Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Uh, coming soon, uh, Dmitry Alperovich from CrowdStrike, Alan Cohn from DHS, Mary DeRosa from uh, the National Security Council, uh, and Bruce Schneier from really everything cyber and everything cryptographic. Uh, uh, we hope you'll join us uh, for all of those as we once again provide insights into the latest events in technology, security, privacy, and government.